Friends, welcome to another episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. We're back again this week with Ryan David Pfeiffer, our good friend and uh, fearless leader, lead pastor here at North Coast Calvary Chapel. And we have a rich conversation. Man, there's some fun stuff. We we dive into comparing and contrasting Jesus and Herod as party hosts and banquets and what that could mean for us. We explore uh, the idea of Jesus as the new Moses and some surprising connections between this text, the the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the storm with some Old Testament illusions of the the person of of Moses and the uh, revelation of of God at the burning bush and at Sinai. So it's, it's fun there. Um, We also dive into perhaps an alternate reading of the crowd that you might not have heard before, where we explore the implications of this group of men as a gathering of of zealots that had a militaristic and a political agenda behind their, their gathering and how Jesus relates to them and maybe some of the implications that that could have for us as followers of Jesus as we try and live out the values and the mission of Jesus in a context that has extreme political polarization. Can we be agents of a different way of being there? We also, for fun, you know, we talk about ghosts because they pop up here. And uh, yeah, the, the hardness of heart, which is also a theme that applies to us and it applies to the disciples in this passage. So, my friends, without further ado, let's dive into this week's conversation with Ryan on the Just Follow Jesus podcast. Hear ye, hear ye, Ryan. I commence, I call to order episode, I think, nine of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. Yes, yes. Happy Monday. It is. Is it episode nine? Because I think we're in we're in the eleventh week. So maybe it's episode ten. This oh, is man. this is uh, week eleven. It's week eleven, but we conflated. We combined the first two weeks. Into oh, that's one, right. So that's we're right. at least one behind. Yeah. Right, so maybe it's episode ten. Now, who knows? That's not the important part. The important part is that we're here and we're going to talk the Gospel of Mark. Yes. You're going to get a little weird. Depending on time, we might talk about ghosts. I don't know. Yep. It's in the text. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, you gave us a great sermon this week, centering for us kind of this theme of compassion and and also the the limitations that or the obstacles that often get in our our way as Jesus followers from um, from following the example of Jesus's interruptibility and um, you. Got us to meditate on you know, just what's what's possible when we bring the little that we have to God. When we even when we feel poorly equipped in whether that's training or, or resources or time or or even just compassion, where God wants to stretch us and grow us. So we're not going to spend a ton of time there. But one thing that I did want to give you a space to, t- to talk about, uh, I'm sure those themes will come up later, is. In our series, you know, you can't, you can't fit in everything, but we did almost, we did almost skip one of the more fascinating scenes in the gospel of Mark, which is, uh, this feast that Herod throws. Yeah. You didn't have an opportunity to get it, get to it in your last sermon. And I don't think that we really discussed it in last week's podcast. So before we dive into the feeding of the 5,000 and, uh, another crisis with the disciples where they're oh ye of little faith in the midst of another storm. Um, I want to talk Herod's banquet and juxtapose that with Jesus's banquet. Yeah, let's do that. Great. I think it's intentional in a, part, a device that Mark wants to use to bring our attention to the contrast between Jesus's kingdom and uh, the kingdom of the world. Okay, so what are some of those contrasts, Ryan? Well, let's review the scenes. Like you got, let's go back and review what happened at Herod's banquet, right? Herod is there with other, other leaders in the area of Galilee and uh, they're having this big sumptuous meal and Herodias sends her daughter Salome out to do a dance to manipulate 
Herod into ultimately bringing John the Baptist's head on a platter. Mm. There's this moment that is so Jesus language that it's it just arresting uh, where he says to his daughter, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Mm. And it just sounds like something Jesus would say to us about prayer, mm-hmm. but it's Herod saying it to her. And she's being manipulated by her mom and she's manipulating him. And there's even this weird sort of lewd kind of vibe about it because her dancing, it says, quote, pleased Mm -hmm. Herod. So there's manipulation, seduction, lewdness, incest, right? He's married to his brother's wife. And it seems like he's been inappropriately attracted to his niece. Ugh. Uh, is right well so that's the scene yeah so herod is the host of of that banquet so it's an abuse of power yes right? maybe it's one thing it's just in in, in herod's um feast it is using power it is the abuse of power that results in death mm-hmm. and at jesus's feast he uses his power to serve yeah you know and another thing that jumps out to me as well is Herod comes across as a as a deeply insecure person in lots of in lots of ways. Yeah. And in in part because you get this sense that right he's throwing this banquet um to you know, celebrate him, himself to make himself look good in front of his guests. I mean, the guests in the scene don't actually say anything. Um but Herod yeah, he makes this outlandish and ludicrous statement that, hey, you know, what what is it that you want up to half my kingdom? It's like, well, that's, to me, I'm, I picture kind of a, you know, a tipsy robber baron in in lots of different ways. And um, wanting to be seen as somebody who's, yeah, like rich and powerful and all these different things. And then really he's, uh, as you mentioned, he's being manipulated by Herodias to do something he was unwilling to do. He knew that that... John the Baptist was a threat, but he, he knew it enough to arrest him, but he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to piss off the crowds. Um, mm. cause he recognized John's holiness. He recognized, uh, there's something that fascinated him about it. it even says that in the text, um, something about his, his person, his message and his presence that kind of captivated Herod's. I've got compassion for the guy. Um, but he's a, he's a deeply right, insecure person who his egotism, um, yeah, leads to death and destruction. And like, I, as you mentioned, perhaps a inappropriate attraction in some capacity. Well, let's compare that with how does J- Jesus behave as the banquet host in this next scene? Yeah, well, let's go back and forth on it. The first thing that stands out to me is... If um, Herod is insecure and exercising abuse of power, Jesus is, he's just, there's an incredible confidence without stridency. Mm. Um, But it's like a, it's a, um, it's a grounded, healthy picture of power Mm -hmm. where it's, he uses his power to empower other people. And you see the disciples empowered to participate in this moment that multiplies the food. Mm-hmm. Like he could have done the miracle without him, but he doesn't do that. He, he involves them in it. And certainly the, the end result is compassion, not death. Um, what else? Yeah, I think you named it well. I Both scenes are, are filled with frenetic activity. I mean, you've got kind of this lavish party scene that's going on. Uh, and then juxtapose that is we've seen the disciples come, you know, excited, but also weary off of their first exploits of being sent out and kind of commissioned. And in fact, they're referred to in the text as apostles, which is not typically how Mark refers to them. That's right. He usually calls them uh, disciples. So they've, they're fresh off of being apostolic for the first time and to much success, right? That's, they're coming back with a good report card. I mean, They've healed people, uh, they've healed the sick, and they've cast out demons. I mean, they right. did what they, what they saw their teacher doing um, successfully. But they come back into, once again, like a really frenetic scene. I mean, they find Jesus, and there's all these people already kind of like going to and fro. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Jesus, in his response to the disciples there, invites them 
what to, to solitude and to peace to get away to rest and rejuvenation and then even later in the actual bank kind of banquet scene or there's this building crisis and yeah jesus definitely comes across as this kind of cool cool calm and collected uh character challenging the disciples to well hey like you feed them what are, what are you gonna do about it that's right yeah well said yeah i think that says it i think um the early church also in terms of just looking at the feast and the, and the, and the, the food and the table set is uh, the great, the, the last supper. And the early church really did look at a lot of this. So if you were to say, okay, you got Herod and you got the contrast with what Jesus is doing here. And then ultimately it's a foreshadow of Jesus at the last supper where he takes the bread and he, this is my body. And he ultimately multiplies the impact of his life, the, the life giving his life to his body to feed many, mm-hmm. to feed all that would believe in him. Anyone who believes in him will be saved. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's Jesus is the good, the righteous, the compassionate, the gracious King. Mm-hmm. In John's gospel, the disciple or the crowd at the end of this feeding the 5,000 try to make him King. Mm-hmm. So there's the King contrast between him as a King and this guy, Herod is a King. Um, but Jesus is the gracious King. He is the, he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And I love how you framed Herod. It's such a contrast to the insecure, power hungry, easily manipulated type of leadership that Herod is. Mm -hmm. And I think when our leadership is just rooted in the fear of man in the need to please people and to, to curry favor with people. It just leaves us vulnerable to be manipulated and it leaves us vulnerable to corruption. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is not governed by the need to curry favor with people, although he loves people. He's so compassionate, but he's not driven by their need. He's driven by the desire to do his father's will. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you brought up the, uh, the gospel of John reference there and the response that the crowds have this impulse to crown him King and his resistance of that because it connects actually to a deeper context and, and perhaps maybe a little bit of an alternative reading of this scene that I know that I hadn't really heard of until we dug into the text a little bit deeper. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've got Jesus coming ashore and he's filled with compassion because he sees this crowd of people as a sheep without a shepherd. And I think that the easy, um, response or interpretation of that that we have is to immediately think of what it actually says. It invokes this image of, okay, a shepherd taking care of a vulnerable flock of sheep, which is an image that's used often throughout scripture. And, you know, obviously in John, Christ is like the good shepherd. But um, let's talk a little bit about the zealous context here and that this crowd it's entirely possible that the term shepherd here, and this is, I'm pulling this from, uh, from John James Edwards uh, commentary that we referenced last week, where he talks about how actually in the Jewish context, the term shepherd had less of the connotations that I just described, like the actual pastoral kind of um, animal husbandry type shepherd. And it connoted more of a prophetic, uh, had a, more of a prophetic meaning. It had almost this, militaristic or kingship association. And so it starts to, we start to see the crowd of people um, perhaps a little bit differently. Maybe they're not just this vulnerable um, flock, but maybe they're, or maybe they are vulnerable, but in a different way insofar as that they are in need of a, a leader and perhaps a different type of leader than what they think that they need. Yeah, and that makes sense why his immediate response to his compassion, actually before it's food, it's teaching. Mm. And it says that he, uh, so he began, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And um, if we were to go along with that, which is entirely reasonable, given the context of the environment, right, that area was a hotbed of, freedom um, fighters and liberation movements. And uh, Jesus as a young boy would have seen that Mm -hmm. and would have been aware of that. Um, 
And it, it is all the men. Did you mention all the men that were are it, the way? Oh it's yeah, to, no. Unpack that. Well, it's in verse forty-four. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. Now, it's interesting. The language that Mark's using is not the same language that he uses to describe the crowds in general. Why this specific mentioning of the men? Well, presumably, possibly because if you take also the John reference that they wanted to make him king, it, they're people that are there are these revolutionary individuals. We're there because now that John the Baptist is dead, they're looking at Jesus as this potential revolutionary. Maybe they're upset. They're angry. They're incensed by what happened to John the Baptist. And they're looking at Jesus to be the one to stand up against uh, the corrupt powers that be. First, Herod, and who is a lackey for the Roman Empire. Um, so that being said, I think the teaching is really important as an expression of compassion because here Jesus is going to be giving him his teachings on the kingdom of God, right? He's Mm -hmm. telling them the good news about the kingdom of God and its subversive nature, which is clearly not first and foremost, this sort of militaristic, like you were saying, uh, political movement Mm -hmm. that they would have been more comfortable with. The Zealots would have been like, yes, that's what we do, right? They are, and later, eventually in 70 AD, they will do that. Mm -hmm. They will rally the troops in the 60s, in the late 60s, and then again in the 70s. From this region, they will mobilize a military um, political movement and um, Jesus won't go for that. Mm -hmm. And so he's teaching them, giving them a chance to catch his vision for the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God advances. Mm -hmm. And it's not through their weapons. It's not through their political ideologies. Mm -hmm. Well, even think of it immediately brings to mind the, you know, the scene in Gethsemane where the the ear is cut off and Jesus rebukes Peter saying those who live by the sword die by the sword. Yeah. The way of Jesus is not the way of the sword is not the way of of violence. It's not the way of, uh, as you said, militaristic, uh, political revolutionary movements. And it's not even the way of abundance. Let's take the other side, the material abundance. Hmm. He's like, you don't need to have, you know, these huge storehouses of funds to do God's will, to feed the people. Mm-hmm. It's like, bring me what you have. Mm. Now, here is the point at which cynicism, cynicism could really set in for us because it just seems like Jesus is over-spiritualizing this moment here. And it really flies against in the face of the sort of the practical pragmatism of the disciples. And he's like, bring me what you have. And he, he multiplies the loaves supernaturally. Uh, And I talked about this in the message, and I think it's right here, precisely here, as we are confronted with the supernatural spiritual nature of Jesus and his ministry, that it were tempted to overlook that, Mm -hmm. to write it off, because it just seems so inaccessible. In fact, starting a revolution or, you know, going out and and somehow raising the funds seems way more feasible than Mm -hmm. what Jesus does. But he has a different approach that is uh, profound. And it's steeped in his, it's steeped in the way that he is trying to teach them to depend on God for everything that they do, mm-hmm. which is huge and essential to the life of a disciple. Otherwise, if we're not depending on God, we're more vulnerable to trying to accomplish God's work in the world's ways. Mm-hmm. The truth is the ends don't justify the means. How we do God's work matters Mm-hmm. As much as what we're actually laboring toward. Hey, I just want to see people come to faith. But how we go about it, how we do church, how we do our life, live our lives matters. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're, we don't have to spend too much time here and feel free uh, to answer as little or as much as you like. But um, I loved everything that you're just saying about how the example th- that Jesus sets um, here with the fishes and the loaves and, and perhaps in, in resisting the impulse of the crowds to crown him king or to start a, you know, a political revolution. This whole series is centered around this theme of discipleship, just follow Jesus. And so implications for us as Jesus followers within our current context, I mean, the, the election, midterm elections are technically tomorrow. We're recording this on Monday. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how is, maybe could you just speak to briefly how as we as Jesus followers can embody 
um, a way that's different from the world's when it comes to engagement in, in politics? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's challenging to try to extrapolate from Jesus's context to ours. We're in a democracy. They didn't have any right to vote. Um, so I definitely think the, the, the call to vote is real for us because it's, uh, it's a privilege that we have and we should, we should utilize those things. All the, the rights, privileges that, that have been made available to us in a democracy, we should use and thank God for them. Um, I do think if we go to the food for a minute at the money, there's nothing wrong with buying. There would have been nothing wrong with going out and buying that stuff if they could have afforded it. It's mm -hmm. debatable whether they could. But what's important here is that Jesus is trying to teach us as his followers to not depend on human strength, on human strategy. And that's, and I think that's really important for us when it comes to anything, when it comes to politics, when it comes to finances. Um, and I think um, when it comes to our, the way we plan, and I think Jesus's example is to draw near to his father, to listen to his father and to follow his father into doing what human creativity or human imagination alone couldn't conjure up. Mm. And um, I definitely think in our political environment, there are temptations toward the extremes to, on the right and the left. It's probably hard for people on the right to see what those extremes are. It's hard to see it when you're in it. And it's mm. probably true to you on the left. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to see it. They just see, th probably view it as a necessary, it's necessary. It's justified by the, by the world we're in. Mm -hmm. The worse the world is, the more justified we are in our extremism. Mm. But our con situation can't even compare to theirs. I mean, these people are literally ruled by a foreign power mm -hmm. that is there taking their money. It's not their own government taking their tax money. It is like a foreign power taking their tax money mm -hmm. and um, they, gosh, it's, it, it's understandable why they want to revolt mm -hmm. the way they do. Well, especially, um, especially when you got rulers like, you know, the Herod that we just saw in the previous scene. Yeah. Just so, just absolutely so over the top corrupt. Mm -hmm. And as corrupt as people, you know, view our politicians, I mean, and I don't doubt that that's true. Mm-hmm. It, uh, there's even, they have just as much, if not more reason to be, to want to lean into their own sort of, you know, to lean into the sword, hmm. you know, uh, you got the Herodians who go the opposite direction. They, 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 the Herodians are like, let's work with the corrupt powers that be for our own advantage. Mm -hmm. Let's not fight against it. If you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And so that may be the, is the other side of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can kind of see Jesus is not siding with the Pharisees. He's not siding with the Sadducees. He's not siding with the Herodians or with the Zealots. Mm -hmm. I think that's always going to have to, has to speak to the people of God. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, we should always be careful. It doesn't mean we can't actually, can't exercise our faith in the political arena. Certainly we can, and we should. However, there's always the temptation to substitute God's power for worldly power. Mm -hmm. That's always going to be a temptation. We have to always be willing to double check ourselves because it's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Well said. Thank you. I'm going to give that a solid A. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you didn't know you were being great. Yes. Over thank here, you, Professor but... Joseph. <laughs> um, well, we've already started to, we haven't named it explicitly, but one of the things when you start unpacking some of the subtext in this text is uh, you start to see these comparisons between Jesus and Moses, because there's actually a number of different aspects to this narrative and this story that harken back to, to Exodus and to the, the story of Israel that the original audience would have known. Well, um, and it's kind of a, an interesting subtext that I want us to explore a little bit. And so um, the first connection that can kind of be made is in that term as shepherd. And I already mentioned it, you know, um, the the preeminent leadership archetypes within the Jewish community were what? Well, 
Dave, the Davidic monarchy is absolutely one of them. But then Moses, I mean, Moses and David are kind of the two great, greatest leaders in, in the Jewish imagination. And, um, so, and they're both leaders at a time when their people were being oppressed by arguably the most powerful empire of, in that region, in that time, mm -hmm. Egypt and Rome. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, but the, the, you already mentioned, okay, so how is Jesus, how do we see Jesus as the new Moses in this? Well, um, okay, there's that kind of loose connection between that term of shepherd, you know, his, his shepherding impulse towards the, the sheep without a shepherd. But then I feel like... But also the, Moses was a shepherd when uh, he was called. Oh, there we go. Yes, he was in fact a shepherd. Remember, he was shepherding uh -huh. sheep when he uh, saw the burning bush. Yeah, he was serving Jethro. Um, well, and then also, so Jesus hurries the disciples onto this boat and sends them out into the lake and says, hey, you go on ahead. I'm going to stay here and I can get to dismiss the crowd, which makes also, it makes more sense. And it strengthens that case that this isn't a crowd, uh, a mixed crowd of men and women who are spiritually curious. Like we've seen a lot of the rest of the crowd say hey, they've, they've heard about Jesus's growing reputation as a teacher who teaches with authority and power, but also as a healer. Um, no, 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 this, you know, so if he's got this kind of riled up group of dudes who are ready to go, uh, take on, the invading foreign power. Well, he sends his disciples off and he says, don't I'm, you guys go, I'm going to stay here and dismiss the crowd. I'm going to, um, I'm going to calm, calm them and disperse them back to their own homes instead of being like, yes, on like onto Rome. Uh, and then what does he do? Well, he ascends a high place to pray, which That's is right. something that is Moses is incredibly well known for as yeah. well. Um, but maybe the difference, whereas Moses ascends to, uh, to receive the law, Jesus, uh, ascends to connect with his father and That's right. where Moses comes down to reveal the, the law, Jesus comes down to reveal himself himself. Yes. Um, yeah. And he walks on the water and there is the pass them by ver language oh, yeah, yeah. in let's the talk Mark about, passage. Let's talk about that one. If you're an Old Testament nerd, it would grab your attention because even the Greek phrasing is very similar to the Septuagint Greek of the Old Testament phrasing. It says that he intended to pass them by. And uh, that is reminiscent of uh, God in Exodus 33:22, when it says that he, my glory is about to, will, will pass um, by them. Mm -hmm. And that same phrasing is used when Moses asked to see his glory. Mm. He says, Michael, you know, you'll, it'll pa I will pass by you. And um, it's, it's, it's hard to know why that language, to be honest, why the language of passing by, but maybe it's just the image of a king coming by you. I don't know. I, mm. I don't really know what the significance of the pass by it's funny in this in this scene well in exodus it's because he can't look at god face to face mm -hmm. and so as god has to pass him so he can see him from the backside meaning he can't handle a direct view of god's glory mm -hmm. so he has to see some kind of diminished some kind of muted mm -hmm. to protect himself it's like looking you know on an eclipse you're looking at it indirectly now you don't look at it straight on because the light, the, the rays will hurt your eyes. Burn those redness. Right. So it's a little bit like you're looking at it through a reflection mm -hmm. of sorts. But on the, on the sea, he's passing them by and he's clearly revealing himself, one, in the miraculous act of what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's walking on the water and that's a, certainly an allusion to God's authority over the seas, to tread on the seas. We see that in Job. I can't remember Job 9, 8. Um, it, Mm -hmm. You know, Job says that you, you tread on the waters. Mm -hmm. yeah, the only who, person who walks on water yeah. in the Old Testament is God. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And Matthew preserves the account of Peter for a moment walking on water with Jesus in this moment. But for whatever reason, Peter doesn't relay that part of the story. <laughs> he leaves that out. He's like, yeah, don't tell that part, man. I don't, my, I don't know why. Not my it, finest moment. <laughs> yeah, is it because he starts to drown? But you would think he'd be like, hey, I had a moment where I walked with Jesus on water. But uh -huh. no, he doesn't record that moment. Maybe it was out of humility. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
But when Jesus is going to pass by him, it's funny and it's a bit cheeky because he's like, just, hey guys, they're straining in the storm and he's just cruising. Mm -hmm. And it just shows us that in the midst of life's storms, his God's not worried. Mm. I mean, there's Old Testament passages in the Psalms where the Lord scoffs and laughs at the plans of the nations and their attempt to thwart God's purposes. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is so relaxed in the feeding of the 5,000. Bring me what you got. He knows all along what he's going to do. And in the storm, when the disciples are just straining, what a powerful picture of God. God is not worried. He's not anxious. He's relaxed. He's walking on the water. And it uh, it's a beautiful picture that God reveals himself to us in the depths. Mm -hmm. When we obey Jesus and we follow him into mission and compassion to reveal Jesus through our words, our prayers, our actions, and we, are, we allow Jesus to lead us out into deep waters where we're in over our head, it's in those places where we're vulnerable, where we're like, Jesus, you gotta, God, you need to show up. I think what Mark's showing us here is that that's where we're going to encounter Jesus. Mm. We want to encounter him in our quiet time. And I think we do. I'm not denying that. But we also encounter him in a very unique way in obedience. When we are past the point of our own resources. Mm -hmm. And we get a front row seat to watch God show up. And we get to witness his glory. in Spectacular ways. Um, and his glory for those that he has sent us to is always also going to be for us. His compassion is going to be for us as mm. well. Well, and his compassion, again, I love that you uh, you pointed out the past them by one. That's something that just hilariously and humorously jumped out at me when I was rereading this text because he just, I'm picturing all the disciples who are seasoned fishermen out on like in their element and they're just stru it's full struggle bus mode you know yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and he's been watching them you know from that's the image like the imitation that we get he's is, been watching yeah. and waiting yes he doesn't come to the fourth watch three or six a.m in the morning somewhere in there mm -hmm. yes but then it's not it says okay he goes out to he goes out to them walking on the you know like walking on the lake uh, he saw them straining. Then shortly before dawn, so like you said, the fourth watch, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they freaked out. Um, so one, I, I'm just like, dude, I mean, what a hilarious image of Jesus kind of just moseying across the lake at his own pace. Um, and like looks over and sees the, these disciples that are struggling and then they freak out. But once again, I, I, I highlight that just because it's a funny scene in my mind. Yeah. Um, like he, he wasn't going out to meet them in the boat. He just was going to let them keep kind of struggling in lots of ways. But they have this response of fear and terror. And so even though it doesn't name it as compassion, um, his compassion for the crowd was named earlier. But I see it at work again here. He's got his disciples, his guys who are responding to him and being yeah. like, ah, you know, a, a ghost. And so he enters into their fear and their suffering and the, yeah, the circumstances that are overwhelming to them. Um, but then he, so he says, you know, take courage. It is I don't be afraid, which is, I mean, one that's just deeply encouraging to each of us, that those are the words that, that Christ will speak to each of us in the midst of our own storms. But that. Um, to kind of play back on that, well said. Uh, that Old Testament, you know, um, the underlying Old Testament subtext here, that it is I, at least in the Septu Septuagint, once again, is the exact same formulation, ego emi. That's right. Which is what God says to Moses in the encounter with the burning bush. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And... So that's, there's this beautiful moment right there where, okay, he's been in some ways um, acting parallel to Moses, but then at this crucial moment, he reveals yeah, that the feeding with the 5,000 is, mm -hmm. is like, is a echo of the manna. Yes, exactly. And the miraculous provision of, of whatever that was, the, the manna, the, what is this, right? What is it? Mm -hmm. uh, the bread in the wilderness and uh, the... And then Jesus goes up to the high point to, uh, in prayer with his father and uh, reminiscent of Moses going up on the top of the mountain. 
And then you get him walking and revealing himself using the ego me, which he uses in Exodus um, 34. Um, I am in Exodus 3, 14 mm-hmm. at the burning bush. Yes, that's a lot of Moses. <laughs> but more than just Moses, right? Because that statement right there, he's uh, he reveals like the or he's just he's nodding at, you know, the fullness of who he is, which is not just not just the next new new Moses, a great leader, you know, um, not just the the sort of messianic revolutionary political figure that uh, that the zealots had wanted him to be. No, he's he's more than that. He's That's right. He's the God who walks on water and he's the God who's just very presence when he enters the boat. I love I love how in this scene, um, you know, it's not like when he was asleep on the boat and he's and he wakes up and he rebukes it. It's like you see him entering the boat out of his tenderness and compassion towards his disciples and the storm just stills. That's right. It's almost like an an afterthought. That's right. What a display of authority. Mm hmm. Um, so this leads us to just a fun, a fun, quick question because we're allowed to do stuff like this, uh, a nerdy side tangent. They think he's a ghost. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think about ghosts? (laughs) (laughs) You know, have I ever told you that, um, I lived in a house that was reportedly haunted? Oh, really? Yeah. When I was in second grade, uh, there was a house that when we moved, our neighbors told us that we, I think they want to say we had lived there longer than anybody they had known. And that their people that had lived there prior had reported strange happenings. And my parents, who were my dad in particular, was at that time a bit of an agnostic slash atheist, didn't believe in spiritual things. But he, to this day, will tell you, he saw um, something in that house. Mm. And so did other relatives. We didn't know that as a kid, as children in the home. But we certainly, I can tell you, of all the places I've ever lived, uh, that place was the scariest. And there were just weird sounds, feelings, and, and for the adults, weird appearances. Cause I was, you know, in bed, but they would stay up late and see strange things. I don't know. I don't, I, I, yeah, exactly. My, uh, my, one of the funniest ones is my grandfather on Christmas, uh, reportedly came down and saw someone standing by the window, looking out the window. They were standing in the house by the Christmas tree, looking out the window, a woman, and she turned and told him and gave him like a shh kind of a thing and then turned back around and faced outside the window. And it gave him the chills because he didn't expect to see anybody down there, but he thought we had guests. And um, went to the bathroom, walked back upstairs and then asked my mom that morning, Who's, who is staying here? Why didn't you tell us you were having somebody else come? And she said, there's nobody else here. And they got in this whole debate about it. <laughs> but um, it was a topic that he was very reluctant to bring up. But both my mom, my dad, my grandparents, uncles had seen things in her home. I think ultimately I don't believe – in terms of ghosts, I do believe in spirits. Hmm. And I do believe um, in demonic spirits that um, can dwell in places. Hmm. Just like we see with the demoniac in that tomb, in those, in that place. And I do think spirits can get attached to places, maybe because of traumatic events where they're, they get a foothold in that space because of something. Uh, I think there's, there's truth to that. I won't go too much into it because it's all speculative, but yeah. it also does reveal sort of the, the superstitions of the people at the time too. I think that's what happens. They are so shocked by what they see Jesus doing. They have no expectation for him to come out to them in that moment Mm -hmm. that they resort to superstition and project onto Jesus, their fear, which I think is a really important lesson in our walk with God. If you follow Jesus, it is easy to project onto him our fears when in fact he's coming to, he's coming into our life that we can, God comes into our life and sometimes we see him and experience him as a threat rather than as a deliverer or a savior. Mm-hmm. I think that actually is very true for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it speaks to just how much our conditions. I mean, we we look at the disciples in this whole scene, and we see people like I mentioned. They've been on a bit of a roller coaster. They're coming. They're coming back from presumably the high of their successful first mission. 
um, to having their quiet retreat uh, with Jesus interrupted to then being forced into this awkward position of, what do you mean? How we're like, how are we supposed to do this impossible thing? Right. To seeing, well, Jesus miraculously provide and then being sent out into a storm that really, uh, that makes a mockery of their own physical strength. So all that being said, the conditions have transpired to be like, they are, um, they're exhausted, they're wearied, they're That's cynical. Right. And it comes to this phrase where um, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their <laughs> yeah, hearts right. were hardened. So I'd love for us to end um, by, and this conversation by two things. One, yeah, if you could just reflect on us, that hardening of heart there, what's going on? with the disciples and um, because oftentimes I, you know, we associate hardness of heart with the Pharisees really easily. That's right. But not with the disciples, the disciples misunderstand who Jesus is or whatnot, but here we see them as hardened hearts. So as people who are seeking to be disciples of Jesus, what do you think um, this, this scene has to say to us about the, the softness or hardness of our hearts? You go first. What what does it say to you? I'm curious. Like uh, when you see that phrase, how does that, what does that reveal about their condition in that moment? And how does that even relate to their reaction of being amazed? Mm -hmm. And I I assume it also involves the terror they felt too. Yeah. I I think it's definitely connected to the terror there. Um, I think that, when I have the hardest heart, it's when I, uh, I'm feeling exhausted and I'm feeling at the end of my own strength or resources. Um, it takes an enormous amount of hope, enormous amount of faith to, to be hopeful, to be optimistic. This, the, if you look around at the world in general, uh, it's the natural inclination that we have when we face the corruption of the world, when we face the the, the brokenness, uh, the suffering that we see in our own lives and the lives around us is towards that cynicism that we see earlier in the chapter from the disciples. Mm. And I've experienced that myself. Um, but I also get really hard hearted. I know when I have unmet expectations and particularly when um, something that I feel entitled to is mm. taken from me or is not met or is given to somebody else. And I feel like I see that going on uh, in this in this scene as well. You know, I mean, I have to imagine that I, as a disciple, after being apart from Jesus, um, you know, this incredible friend and master who I've been, I've been, I've given my life to, and I come back from my first mission that he sends me out on, and he's like, "Yeah, come away with me," and we're like, okay, "Yes, awesome!" Like, we get you to ourselves, Jesus. Um, it's some me time, some time to recharge the batteries and that gets thwarted. I know that I could just totally see myself like when I'm fixed, when I have fixed in my mind, like, Hey, it's been a long day, you know, I want to, um, and I'm really looking forward to going home and not doing any more work or not talking to people or doing anything, but just to like, you know, turn on on the show that Kelly and I want to watch and like, you know, kicking my feet up and cuddling or something. And then life thwarts that I can get really cynical or bitter or just impatient, mm. you know? Um, so that's what I immediately think of when I think of the hardened hearts. Yeah. I think of the parable of the soil. I agree with you. I think what you're saying is right on. It's really, um, I, I think Jesus talks about this, these kinds of responses when he's going through the parable of the soil and the different kinds of soils and how they receive or don't receive the seed. I think of the path and the reason why does the path um, doesn't receive the seed is because it's been walked on. It's hard and the bird can come. The seed doesn't get into the soil. It gets sits on the surface and the bird can come and which is the devil, right? Satan and pluck that seed and remove it. It almost seems like in this case, they saw a miracle. They saw something. They saw Jesus do something, but it's deeper meaning is lost to them. And it's like they almost forgot about it. And I think how many times God does something in my life and I have to go through the lesson again and again and again. Mm. 
it's like, it's just not sinking in. It's hard for me. And I mean, literally they're on the sea and that's the second time they've been in a storm. And we're going to see Jesus feed the 4,000 and he's going to bring up hardness of heart there as well. It seems to be associated with the inability to remember what God has done for us mm. and to apply it to our, to the faith that we need in the moment. To have faith in a moment when we've already seen God show up for us. It's like almost like we're going through the situation all over again for the first time and forgetting who he is, forgetting what he's done in our life. Maybe falsely assuming kind of like, well, I got lucky last time or he did it once, but doesn't mean he'll do it again. Mm -hmm. And not trusting in his character and in who he is. Um, It seems also to relate to the inability to perceive him. That hardness of heart is the inability to recognize God in our midst because of our reaction to fear or frustration or maybe because of our self-reliance, whatever you want to focus, whatever we're focused on, we're unable to recognize God mm-hmm. coming to us. And so we misappropriate or project onto him our fears. I mean, certainly that could be said about the Pharisees as well. And I think what's disturbing is that as you were saying it, like if the hardness of heart isn't just for people who are not followers of Jesus or people who are enemies of God, it's for all of us. And we all struggle with hardness of heart, which is why we need to understand the importance of repentance, which is why repenting is so crucial. Without repentance, you cannot follow Jesus and grow as a disciple. Repenting is the turning up of the soil over your heart, right? It's the breaking up of that hard heartedness. Mm -hmm. It's the willingness to say, I've got it wrong. I'm seeing this incorrectly. It's confessing sin. It's willing to change our mind and our perspective versus being stubborn in the old Testament for the Israelites, could go back to Moses. Remember, it was stiff-necked. Mm, yeah, they were yeah. always stiff-necked. It was like, but it's like hard, right? Uh-huh. Your neck is like hard. It's not flexible and loose. Mm-hmm. It's fixed and rigid, stubborn. Stubborn-hearted might be another application or meaning of yeah. hard-heartedness. They keep going back to their default. We're in this alone. They mm-hmm. fall back on their pragmatism rather than on... You know, as Paul puts in Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do it measurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. It's like they have they don't have that wonder and that faith. God could do something. Mm-hmm. I silenced you. <laughs> you did. You did. You, sir, <laughs> have silenced me. <laughs> Not something many people do. (laughs) Uh, I just was, you know, the only thing that we haven't touched on that we kind of did a little bit was the greenness of the grass and the psalm, the, you know, the echoes of, all right, well, he's, um, he's a good shepherd and he's not the shepherd that's going to be the head of the, you know, the the prophetic, political, militaristic, revolutionary movement. Um, He's the, the good shepherd of Psalm 23. That's right. Um, the immediate reference to it, all the major elements of the Psalm 23 are in it, mm. um, or almost all of them, all the major elements of each of the verses. It's pretty amazing. Like I said, even like, um, you know, uh, the valley, the shadow of death. Yeah. You know, um, going into the storm, uh, you're close beside me, comes out to them. Um, pretty awesome. He renews our strength, you know, that are looking for rest. And in the the Lord's my shepherd, I have all that I need. I shall not want. They have everything they need. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, a a banquet. Living, there's a banquet once again. Yeah, the New Living Translation is, um, the typical translation is, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Mm-hmm. But I like the New Living. The Lord's my shepherd, I have all that I need. Mm. I think that's such a brilliant way of putting it. Like, they don't feel like they have all they need. <laughs> but they got all they need. Mm-hmm. And we don't often feel like we do, but in Christ with him, we can do all things. We have all that we need. And, you know, what does it say? He makes me rest in green meadows or green pastures, right? That's the green. Leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. 
brilliant. He guides me along right paths. He, um, he makes my cup overflow. There's like the, their baskets are literally overflowing. Mm-hmm. Paul baskets full. Fascinating. Where did those baskets come from? Like, how did they evolve? Like, at first they had five loaves and two fish. At what point did they need even one basket? Was it multiplying in his hand? <sighs> I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like the mechanics he, of miracles. He, that could know, be your next book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have seen miracles, and one thing that always stands out to me about the miracles I've seen is they always catch you off guard. Like, whoa, did that? It's like you don't. Did that happen? That just happened. And um, I'm trying to think of what had been some of the most spectacular miracles. One of them was an injury I had for 15 years that my daughter prayed for and was healed mm. with no, no medical intervention. She just prayed over it. And she, each day she would ask me if it was better. And I said, no. And I just felt so bad for her. And she's like, can I pray for you again? And I said, sure. She prayed for me yeah. next day. Is it better? No, sweetie, I'm sorry. But you can pray again if you want. She prayed again. And then she stopped asking and I stopped bringing it up. And next thing I know, I'm like, my, my legs just, my calf, I don't, I didn't normally feel any pain. So it wasn't easy to tell. Mm. I got this idea. I can't even tell you how it came in my mind. It just did. Just go for a run and see how it feels. Just test, check it out. So I went for a light little jog. I'm like, I didn't feel anything. Mm. And it just, I just kept running longer and longer and longer. I was back up to almost like my full, my full on pace when I was like running a lot. Mm. I was like, man, I was like running, you know, sub seven minute miles, like in the sixes. That's fast for a 40 year old dude. And I was running like six to eight miles. No pain. I couldn't believe it. And it took me a while to realize that the miracle had happened. Mm. It wasn't like something, some people describe dramatic changes, you know, like a, they felt an electric jolt mm-hmm. and I've heard of that or they felt heat or they felt something pop. But mine was like, Oh my gosh, it's just gone. It's, I don't, it's not there anymore. Pretty amazing. What was Celia's response when you told her? I can't remember. I don't remember what she, she was just happy. Mm. She was just so happy for me. I don't remember what she did or said, but, um, and I know I was injured because I want to say it was just a, like a year or two prior. I tried to run and I couldn't get very far into it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get past like a mile. And it was just really bad. So it wasn't like it was something I hadn't tried in a long time mm-hmm. that had somehow healed. But I've seen so many miracles. I've seen God, I've seen God, you know, provide money, you know, like our house. I've seen him physically heal people. But sometimes, you know, those miracles are, they take us by surprise. Like when he's risen from the dead, they're, they kind of can't believe it. Mm-hmm. He's like right there, and it says that some of them still do not believe. Yeah, I think Luke records that. Maybe it's John, but I don't know. I'm just thinking, how do you not believe that? <laughs> then we get the the famously misnamed doubting Thomas, more like yeah, realistic yes. Thomas. <laughs> yeah, gosh, but yeah, how did he multiply the bread? Was it just like they started giving it, and it was just it was just there? There was just more yeah. to give. Well, it's interesting, you know. There's been a long tradition, you know, particularly back in the like 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, the historical Jesus, you know, search for the historical Jesus, um, where kind of the the German liberalism was really uh, infecting a lot of biblical studies or whatnot. And so there's all these naturalistic, you know, this is real post-enlightenment sort of stuff. But I've heard, I've heard um, some people... Interpret the miracle feeding the five thousands, not that there was any supernatural multiplication of you know of the fish and the loaves, but the the miracle that took place was that the crowd already had all of it, but they were they were being controlled by a spirit of fear and scarcity, and so they were withholding they weren't they weren't sharing, and so it's the act of of faith here, and it's the blessing generosity. of Jesus that inspires generosity, and yeah. so really. The food just comes out of the pockets. And there's a part of me that like, well, one, um, it's always, I think it's always more fun and fruitful 
to have to reckon with the harder interpretation, which is the supernatural one here, um, than just the the humanistic one. Uh, And I think it reveals something about us and the culture that we're raised in, that that we have this propensity to try and figure out, hey, what are naturalistic explanations for it? But I really agree with that. Even so, there's a part of me that I'm like, yeah, if that's the miracle, honestly, given what is so often the state of our own hearts, which is we're, we are governed from fear and scarcity rather than generosity and abundance. Um, if what it was is that, you know, all of a sudden everybody just wanted to share what they had with their neighbors. That would still be pretty miraculous. That's still miraculous. And it's still amazing. So for me, it worked, I'm like, yeah, Hey, whatever, whatever, like yeah, you can interpret it either way. It doesn't really change things for me. Yes. Yes. And uh, clearly Mark wants us to confront the supernatural nature of what Jesus did Mm -hmm. and um, the supernatural nature of the task assigned to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I love that. You know, I think it's the world today needs to see that Jesus is unique. And I think we do need to regain his radical love his um, absolute truth and his supernatural power mm-hmm. in our life. I think we need it all. I think that's what, when I study revivals, you see those elements, you see miraculous things happening, mm. weird things, funny things. You're like, well, why did that happen? Who knows? There's a lot of miracles like that in the Bible. Like, why did he do that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why did he spit in the ground and put mud on the guy's eye to heal his eye? Mm-hmm. Who knows? There's so much we just don't understand. Um, but the, the absolute truth of God, the radical love of God and the supernatural power of God, they, they set Jesus apart as unique. And it's, there's a great book by Francis McNutt called the healing reawakening. And in it, he does a historical survey of what happened to the exercising of supernatural power and healing in the church. If it was such a big part of Jesus's ministry, how did it get to the point where it's just so rare to see it? It's like, it's such a controversial thing when it's so prevalent in his ministry. Francis McNutt does an excellent job and it it will blow your mind. Mm. You're like, oh, okay. Fascinating turns in history that, mm. are, he, that he draws from sources, reliable sources to go, oh, this is how the church started to... Um, Turn, and you can see this with other aspects of the church gifts and responsibilities, began to pull it aside and sequester it for the elite. Mm. And it got to the point where only kings and queens could heal. It was something that was a, was a royal prerogative. Mm. Right? Kings were heads of the church. Mm-hmm. And for you to go and do a healing was to usurp a royal uh, authority. You had no right to do it. Mm. To do it would have been anarchy. Fascinating, isn't that? Terribly heartbreaking. So in that case... But the early church up to the fourth century, miracles. Miracles. I was just talking to a guy from Nepal, one of our missionaries from Nepal. Mm -hmm. And I go, okay, so how do you guys send people out to do mission? He's like, well, you know, there's already very strong religious views, so they have to have very clear... Um, revelations that Jesus is unique. So how do you do that? So that they know his truth is unique. They need to see it demonstrated through other acts mm. of Jesus. And I go, what does that mean? And they go, well, um, we sent, we sent people out to, to heal people. So that's, they're all the people they send out are first sent out before they preach or do anything to heal people, to draw people into like, whoa, Tell me more about this, Jesus. Mm. Yeah, what a different paradigm. Than, oh, me, than me, was it me and Kelly? Yeah. Yeah, me and Kelly were like, what? <laughs> like, are people getting healed? And he's like, oh, yeah. Is everyone healed? No. Are people healed on a regular basis? Like, yes. He's looking at me kind of like. And? <laughs> he was like that. Uh-huh. It was, but to him, healing wasn't was a means to an end. So mm-hmm. yes, it's a, it's an act of compassion for the person who's broken. And it's certainly a revelation of Jesus and his power, but it was an open door for the most important miracle, which is for them 
to hear the good news of Jesus and to put their faith in him as their savior, Mm -hmm. which is the most miraculous thing of all, right? Is that people would have faith in Christ. And I thought, wow, that's pretty awesome. I mean, think how, how awesome it would be if it could be commonplace. I think in our scientific world, we get hung up on why isn't everybody healed? Well, I hear that all the time. Why isn't everybody healed? Why isn't everybody healed? But I'm like, we, we go to medicine, all, we go to doctors, even people who are in, you know, don't maybe have conspiracy theories about the medical profession. Gosh, they still have to go to doctors. They still have to depend on medicine at some level. Mm-hmm. And uh, not many people are true anti-science people. And I'm glad for that, by the way. But doctors can't heal everybody, but we still go to them. Mm-hmm. And, but for some reason... It's harder for us to apply that to God. And obviously they go, well, is, if God's all powerful, then why is everyone healed? And it's because you are a faulty conduit and no one wants to hear that. But I really believe it. I'm reading Greg Boyd's book, um, God at War. And he's talking about spiritual warfare and he's making the point, look, in the Bible, it's important to understand that Jesus is constantly pointing to our faith as the reason why we don't see more of God's power exercise through our life and prayers. And we don't want to hear that because I think it feels like a name it and claim it thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's a, it's a big jump to go right to that. But um, I think it's fair to say that we in the West, because we have so many other options, we talked about this last time about the healing, you mm-hmm. know, of the woman and Jairus's daughter. We have so many other things to rely on. We don't need to rely on God. It's easier for us to not be practiced in relying on God's power. Mm-hmm. Which is such a different, and maybe this is the, the, the bow we tied up with, but it's so different than the posture and the expectancy that we see at the very end of this passage of Mark, where yeah, everyone's Jesus, coming to him. Exactly. Yeah, like they've, they've landed and people from every village and hamlet are, are pouring out, bringing the sick, just asking, hey, like, just let us touch, his, touch the hem of his garment. Yes. And rather than saying, hey, how can I learn to, to minister in that authority and power? Mm-hmm. It's uh, we come up with theologies that sort of justify why we don't operate in that power. And as a way of kind of coping with our disappointment and our, and our inability to answer why weren't, wasn't that person healed? I think it evokes guilt. Like, oh, I didn't have enough faith, so they died. And I think people, but I think the enemy uses guilt and accusation to shame people mm-hmm. and then they want to write off the whole enterprise of healing, well, supernatural so, healing. Yeah, not only guilt, but then also just the the fear of uh, fear of mockery, right? Fear of looking that's stupid. True. I mean, that's a a massive obstacle. Yeah, pay. we talked about that yeah. when they the crowd laughs at Jesus mm-hmm. when he goes and he says, "She's not dead." Wait, you know, Jairus's daughter. She's mm-hmm. not dead. She's asleep. Now, ah, you're such an idiot. <laughs> oh, here comes Jesus, the village buffoon. <laughs> yes. And he's like, watch me. <laughs> watch me now. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, um, that was a fun little bunny trail right there, right? Yeah, I mean, how, do you really, how do you really feel about healing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see as much as I would like, but I've seen more since I started asking for it. Mm. And that's just wonderful. Most of my prayers for healing are not, I, I don't see answered. But since I started praying for healing, I've seen way more than when I didn't. Just like in our UCS student ministry, I talked about, yeah, we didn't see very many. Um, we didn't see everyone come to faith that we invited, but when we started to invite people, we saw way more than before, which was almost nothing because mm-hmm. we weren't even asking. We we're so afraid of being rejected or offending people. Well, friends, j- fellow just follow Jesus listeners, thanks for joining us on the journey for another week as we meandered around uh, the hillsides of Galilee with Jesus and uh, some walk on water learned what Ryan really thinks about ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know, each week it's our hope that uh, these conversations would encourage your faith and invite you further up and further into the, the kind of wild journey that it is to, to follow Jesus and to be shaped in his image likeness, to be empowered with his spirit, to be sent out into our homes, into our communities, into our workplaces, to, um, to carry the presence of Christ, that, that peaceful, powerful healing presence of, of generosity and of compassion and not, not the spirit 
of this evil age that is uh, that wants to be the one animating us. So bless you, my friends, and Ryan, bless you, dude. Thanks for blessing thanks, received. Thanks for um, you know being the man to answer the call week in week out and get up and. Uh, mind the scriptures and bring a word of God for the, us, the hungry people of God. Thanks, friend. Yep. My privilege. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Just Follow Jesus podcast. For more information about the series or our church, you can visit northcoastcalvarychapel.org. We also still have some copies of a special coffee table quality journal that we designed and put together to accompany this series in the Gospel of Mark. This whole podcast is a resource of North Coast Calvary Chapel. It's produced and directed by Joseph Carlson. The editing has been done by Nate King, and the music is by the one and only Brian McMaster. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <music>